0: This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Hermat Kazmi read their story, Selection Week, from the August 16th, 2021 issue of the magazine. Kazmi, a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, is a writer from Karachi, Pakistan, who lives and teaches in Iowa City. Now here's Hermat Kazmi.
1: SELECTION WEEK In the beginning, it was him and the gecko. I was probably the only one in the room who saw it, my eyes secretly, partially open. The fourteen other boys in the room stood obediently, bent over, their underpants at their ankles, bottoms hoisted in the air like mine, eyes shut That was the only difference between me and them, them and me. The gecko was directly above him, dull and textured like a pebble. It hung upside down in the crack between the two walls, and I thought it might fall, at any moment, into the crack of his raised ass, out of one crack into another. I continued to stare at his body despite the looming reptilian danger. But I was scared that if I stared too long, my dick might become hard, so I closed my eyes. The silence in the room was interrupted by the drone of the doctor's voice. All right now. Eyes firmly shut. No looking here and there. I want you all to grab your buttocks with your hands and stretch them as far apart as possible. And when I tap your shoulders one by one, I want you to cough three times, loudly. Understood? Silence, which meant yes, we understood. The doctor was tall and sturdy, all muscles and rounded shoulders, his uniform starched and crisp, three golden stars glistening on the shoulder flaps. With a flashlight in one hand and a latex glove on the other, he began his survey, tapping shoulders, observing our assholes, those beautiful flowers that were now in full bloom. After the medical screening, we waited in a large sitting area. Meanwhile, the next group of 15 boys was sent into the doctor's room. We were going to get our forms back shortly with either FIT or TUF, temporarily unfit, stamped on them. The unfit would be let go. In the sitting area, speculations were rife. Dude, what the fuck was that? Why do they check our assholes? They think we're hiding national security secrets there. No, yar. They just want to make sure no one ever went to town on our bottoms. No place in the Air Force for gandus. An hour later, the medical assistant appeared. At that moment, I really wished someone had dipped his dick in my ass, so I would be rejected then and there. But, despite the varicose veins in my scrotum, which the doctor had fondled with stiff formality and suspicion, I was declared fit. The three boys with DUF stamped on their forms were asked to leave. The fit boys hugged and congratulated one another for having made it through the first round. A wave of excitement swept the room, saved as everyone was from the embarrassment of being sent home on the first day. He was in a corner hugging two boys at the same time, a tangle of limbs. A group of boys came out of the doctor's room. Another went in and many more were waiting their turn. I wasn't surprised at the number of people who were applying to the Air Force. Growing up, I had always known someone who was trying to join the armed forces. The tailor's son, the laundryman's nephew, a classmate's neighbor. Once, on the way back from school, I chatted with a rickshawwala and learned that before channeling his energies into his three-wheeled vehicle, he had applied to the military and been rejected. That's the way it was, it seemed. Before people did anything with their life, they applied to the armed forces. And only after they had been rejected three consecutive times and hence rendered ineligible forever, did they think of doing something else. I applied too. Not because I wanted to, but because my father had when he was my age and he hadn't made it. Didn't matter that I didn't want to. I was already on a gap year after high school, having been rejected from every single medical school that I had tried for. Tao, Aga Khan, Ziao Jin, even Bakai. It was my year of shame and humiliation. I applied because I preferred to spend a week away from home, away from my mother's taunts and insults, her constant comparisons with this or that friend of mine, who had got into a med school or an engineering program was well on his way to starting life. I applied to the Air Force to fulfill my middle class parents' middle class dreams, dreams that my upper class high school friends would respond to with arrogant smiles and eye rolls. I didn't tell anyone I was applying. In the evening, all of us, the 60 boys who had survived the first day and been declared fit, were asked to gather in the academic block. That was when I saw him again. Sitting on a chair two rows away from mine, he looked in my direction and held my gaze for a little longer than was necessary. His eyes were like the sun setting. You could really look into them without feeling the sharp hurt of staring at something forbidden. He waved his stack of light pink papers in my direction and smiled as if he had just won an award. For a while, I indulged his gaze simply because he was attractive. Like so many of the boys in my school whom I would stare at from a distance and never approach. Boys whose pictures I would talk to on my phone at night or fantasize about before sleeping. Then, realizing that someone somewhere in the room must be looking at us, looking at each other, I rolled my eyes from him to the window. Outside, the trees stood still. The heat of the bodies in the room was stifling. As I waited for the registration process to begin, I rehearsed monologues that, on my return home, I would deliver with great enthusiasm and mock disappointment about the unpunctuality of the ISSB staff. Monologues that would ultimately exasperate my father, whose sing-song praises of the armies and Air Force's infatuation with time management was all I had heard in the days preceding my arrival here. I would also complain about the sticky dust, the broken chairs, the defunct fans, the geckos on the walls, the clusters of mosquitoes, the ripe, festering smell of sweat, the lack of boys from Karachi, the abundance of boys from Rawalpindi, Gujranwala, Miavali, Tando Adam, Mirpurkhas, Multan, Dera Ghazi Khan, Sakhar, Larkana, Mithi boys with whom I had nothing in common except sex and age. When the ISSB staff arrived, our baggage was searched, our documents were verified, and our phones were confiscated. Later in the evening, we were served tea and then a dinner of aloo gosht and roti. At 8 sharp, we were asked to return to our rooms, which would then be locked from the outside. The rooms looked more like hospital wards, oblong, white paint peeling off in large flakes. There were twelve beds, six on each side, rusty, wrought-iron affairs. I could not sleep. The wind in the trees outside was more pronounced now, the song it sang. A subdued, powdery gray cut through the darkness of the room. It was the 20th of Muharram, the days of the annual ladies' majlis at her house. It was the first time in my life that I had missed it. What was I doing in this strange, threatening place? Threatening like a bed of nails. A land full of minds. All day the masculinity of the boys around me had made me aware of my own femininity. At school I had found solace in female friendship. At home in the company of my sisters. How had I got so far in the process? Could I make it to the end? Be rewarded with a uniform blue like a rare bird? No, it did not matter, I told myself. In four days, at most, I would be out of this place. Would never see any of these boys again in my life. I could fake it for this short while. In the morning, he asked me if I recognized him. This was a little after four o'clock, after a fervent banging on our doors had jolted us from sleep, after we had rushed to the bathrooms, towels, toothbrushes, toothpastes, trimmers in hand. After, turn by turn, each of us relieved ourselves in stalls where the smell of shit was so strong that we had to cover our noses with our shirts. After we had washed up, shaved, combed, dressed, become ready for the day, Tip top, foggy style. He approached me as I stood outside the dining hall. I was staring absent mindedly at the itinerary on the notice board, squinting, feigning interest. Hey, remember me? He said, tapping my shoulder. Hey, I'm sorry, I don't. We were together during the initial medical test. And I think I also saw you in the registration room yesterday. Did you? I don't think I saw you. Oh. He shoved his hands into the pockets of his jeans. And then, What city are you from? Karachi, I said. From around here only. Nice, yar. I'm from Lahore. Cool. He volunteered his name and presented his hand, and I offered mine his grip firm, providing both a mild pain and a warm comfort. The knob jangled and the door to the dining hall yawned open. We walked in together and, despite the commotion of famished boys that almost separated us, we ended up sitting next to each other. This made me utterly self-conscious. I was suddenly all too aware of the hairiness of my arms of my elbows a shade darker and drier than the rest of my skin. Of the way my tight shirt accentuated the lack of muscles on my body. We ate in silence, or at least I avoided speaking for the fear of exposing a smear of food accidentally left on my teeth. Somewhere across the room a boy clinked his fork and clattered his plate a bit too loudly. Two superintendents stood like palace guards, observing us scrutinizing every movement. After breakfast, we were asked to gather in the foyer. The group testing officers were about to arrive. Together with the psychologist and the president of the ISSB, the GTOs had a say in who got selected and who didn't. The superintendents, reading our names from a list, divided us into six groups of ten. When the GTOs arrived, Each of them a variation of the other. Butts bobbing in their fitted blue pants. Hair trimmed to expose the sheen of their scalps. Half a dozen medals pinned to their chests. They took charge of the six wings. He and I were in different wings. Throughout the morning we sat for tests with our own group. At lunch we were at different tables. After lunch we had the rest of the day to ourselves. Most of the boys changed into more casual clothes. Everyone gathered in the anteroom, room, which, with its offering of snooker, chess, table tennis, snakes and ladders, carom board, and a large TV, was the most appealing place in ISSB. The anteroom room contained so many photographs that I could not tell what color the walls were. Army generals, Navy chiefs, air marshals, martyrs of the 1965 war, the guide himself, all huddled against one another, rubbing shoulders. The TV had only 12 channels, all of which played either patriotic anthems or the documentaries about the armed forces, and I was nervous to insert myself into groups of boys hunched over this board game or that, so I sat alone, observing everyone. Many of these boys must have failed med school entrance exams, like me. Many of them would settle for modest jobs in pharmacy or tech. But here they were, smelling of old sweat, with their bedraggled clothes and scraggly mustaches, fully convinced that they had a fair and equal chance of making it into one of the most full-of-itself professions in the country. In the best-case scenario, only one of them would get selected. Then, there was another, much smaller group of boys, Even from a distance you could tell them apart. These were the sons of serving armed officers, and, with their hair tamed by pomade and styled into shimmering puffs, clothes tailored specifically for the selection week, shoes polished to reflect their faces, they could blind you with their shine. A shine that was inherited, yes, but burnished further by months of training at army bases, favours of their colonel and brigadier uncles, one of those uncles, or perhaps even their own fathers, must have been a former president of the ISSB. For them, appearing before the selection committee was just a formality. I was too good for one group and not good enough for the other, so I settled for him. At least he was beautiful his rosy, thin lips and eyes like hungry fishes in a bowl. He was idling on the sofa talking to another boy. I went up to him and asked if he wanted to take a walk outside, maybe go to the tuck shop. Small purple-black fruits had fallen on the rocky bituminous pavement, their insides splattered, seeping into the cracks. Along the broad pathway leading to the tuck shop, under a gulmohar tree, a sign wished us good luck. The old and crinkly man at the shop was unboxing some snacks, Dabbing at sweat on his forehead and eyelids with a handkerchief he kept draped over his shoulder. I bought only a bottle of Pepsi. He got a few things. Chili Mili, Kokomo, Kurkure, Bacola. Then we walked back. The outer wall of the compound which faced the main road was half red brick and half filigreed black grill. Cars sped by, giving evidence of life outside. From the spot where we now sat on the large lawn, between the main building and the entrance, one could see the façade, where an inscription read, "Inter Services Selection Board. We recruit the defenders of Pakistan. On the lawn were grimy white benches with bird droppings all over. The sun was beginning to set, the sky deepening into crimson and cobalt. Clusters of rickety insects clung to lampposts that were just coming to life, the mild light illuminating their emerald and burgundy bodies, their fluttering, opaque wings. There was an obsolete F-86 displayed in a corner of the compound, a replica of the one used by M.M. Alam in the indo pak War of 1965. I did not know this but read it on a placard as we sat under the jet's silvery, rusted wings. For a while we talked about mundane things. I liked reading. He was into cricket and football. I had recently completed my A-levels with mediocre grades. He, his intermediate, with a passing percentage. He kept asking questions to propel the conversation. Where did I live? How had my tests gone that morning? Math, physics, IQ, general knowledge, psychological analysis... The officer-like qualities test. Was the answer to the so-and-so MCQ on the so-and-so test A or B? We had different answers. We both were probably wrong. The lagging music of his Punjabi accent clung to his Urdu like ants to a sticky hard candy. But he talked with an ease and comfort, volunteering information that, if I were him, I wouldn't tell someone I had met just a day ago. His father lived illegally in Dubai and worked in construction, sending scant cash whenever he could. He hadn't seen him in 10 years. His mother, now ailing, had retired from her job as a nurse in a government hospital in Rivend. A younger sister was still in school. He wanted to join the Air Force to offer his family a better life. "'Are you serious about the Air Force?' he asked." the veins in his neck blew, bulging. Yes, I said reflexively. It's my passion. As we spoke, our bodies touched occasionally. At every touch, casual and inert though it was, I glanced at the point of contact, but he made nothing of it, his eyes roving around the compound. He peeled open a half roll of zira biscuits and offered them to me. I took one, He kept dropping tiny crumbs on his lap, which resembled the scintillas of dandruff on his shoulders. He slurped his pakola in large gulps, chewed with his mouth open. He was wearing the same ill-fitting clothes that he had worn yesterday. Faded blue jeans, wrinkled white in places, and a black t-shirt with I lost my number, can I have yours? printed on it in a big yellow cursive font. I watched him eat and drink and talk and my understanding of how different he was from me deepened. How humble and innocent. How rich in his poverty. I realized I would be embarrassed if my friends saw me with him. I felt a mix of lust and revulsion. Mostly, I felt a little sad. In him, I had placed the hopes of a friendship, perhaps something even more than a friendship, that would continue outside this place but the impossibility of such a situation an impossibility that was both practical and personal was beginning to be revealed to me we are going to get fucked tomorrow he said then and that seemed to stir something inside me a desire an exhilaration the plain blatant charge of the word he had used Emboldened as if what he had said were a cue, I raised my hand and dusted the crumbs from his shirt. He looked at me, surprised, but did not recoil, just smiled. Then he looked at his crotch where more crumbs had gathered. Should I? I asked. The loudspeaker on the minaret of the small, white marbled mosque in the corner of the compound came to life, ejecting sharp, static noises. The Makre was about to begin. Oh, no, it's fine, he said, getting up and patting his thighs, the crumbs falling like debris. We should go to the mosque and pray with the other boys. I shrugged. You can go, I don't pray. You can pretend to, he looked thoughtful. My chachu is a sobedar in the army. He said they're always watching us, these ISSB people in the dining hall, in the ante room, everywhere. They don't just look at your tests and interviews and how well you perform the physical tasks. So you're saying that man over there could possibly be a lieutenant colonel dressed as a gardener? I asked, looking toward the other side of the lawn where Amali was watering rows of bougainvillea and Amalta's trees. He laughed. Maybe. In that case, let's go. In the mosque, I stood at a distance for a while, casting my eyes around to see if there was any other Shia guy bring separately from the rest, hands resting on his sides. But there was no one else. And because I did not want to set myself apart, I prayed with everyone else, my hands folded in front of me, something I had never done in my whole life, not even at the funeral of my grandfather, who was half Sunni and had had different funeral prayers for that reason. After the prayer we gathered outside the dining room because it was time for the day's results to be posted on the notice board. I did not want to be rejected just yet. I wanted to be able to spend more time with him. When the superintendents arrived with a sheet of paper, the boys started pushing and shoving one another, desperate to see their names. I stood in a corner. Patiently. Since the ISSB gods were watching all the time, I wanted to show them that I had officer-like qualities. Twenty-three boys had failed the tests. They had to be let go before dinner was served. If there was any justice in these things, my name should not have been on the list. I had played a game of eeny, meeny, miny, moe in marking my answers on all the tests, and I was sure I would be sent home today. But my name was there. So was his. I whispered it to myself and it sounded like chimes on a windy day. At night, once more, I could not sleep. There was an incessant hiss of crickets, and somewhere in the compound, dogs barked curiously. I wished he were in my room, in the bed next to mine. I tried to imagine what he looked like while sleeping. Whether he slept with his mouth open or closed. Whether he snored. Whether he slept with his shirt on or off. Whether he slept with his arms folded behind his head, exposing sleek fluffs of hair in his armpits. Whether he liked me. From tomorrow, I promised myself I would try my best. I did not know what to do with my life. I wasn't good at anything. Maybe this was the way out, away from the vitriolic insults of my family, away from the incessant pressures of entrance exams. Suddenly, I felt free. I imagined a future in which he and I were both selected. We would spend two years training together at the Risalpur Academy. We would both graduate as flying officers, deeply and madly in love with each other. It was wishful thinking, I knew. But the fantasies settled like a warm blanket over me and put me to sleep. In the morning, my head was throbbing. My stubble was slick with strands of saliva. I woke up with a desire to work harder intact, but I was nervous about a whole day of physical tasks and interviews. During breakfast, I felt dizzy with headache, the racking pain seeping out of my head and splitting the air. He walked in late for breakfast, found a place to sit quite far from me. Our eyes did not meet. After breakfast, we were asked to wear our very tight white shirts and our very short white shorts and gather outside. That was the dress code for the physical tasks. The shadows of the trees on the ground rippled and swelled. I went and stood with a group of boys of the Army Kids variety. Soon, a few perfunctory questions were exchanged. I felt a sense of validation, acceptance. I kept my hands as still as I could, my spine stiffened. From time to time, I glanced at him, standing with a group of boys who radiated a fanatic, rampant Lahori energy. He was talking, high-fiving, laughter in the air, A laughter that hinted at the jubilance boys slip into when they talk about girls. He looked like an athlete in his white shirt and white shorts. Dull against his lambent, wet sand-coloured skin. Something rose in me then. A feeling too familiar. A lust too strong to be merely physical. A desire too weak to be devotion. It was a feeling I had stifled before a feeling I knew how to fold and tuck into a corner of my heart. I had never been any good at sports. The PT teacher at my school used to call me a sissy. A group testing officer walked us to a far-off field, beyond the back wall of the ISIS-B compound. A small rusted black gate opened into a whole other world, an expanse of hay-brown grass, muddy and spackled in places with wild shrubbery. There was an assortment of hurdles that we had to run over, ditches of various sizes that we had to jump, rope ladders that we had to climb, monkey bridges that we had to cross, puddles of thick mud under barbed wire that we had to crawl through. There were 14 obstacles in total, and each of us had 10 minutes to do them. I managed to do six. The cutoff was five. In the afternoon when we met again, He gave me a lazy boyish hug. Lagayar, he said. I know, my whole body hurts too. Both of us were tired and sunburned, dishevelled, but not completely broken by the physical tasks. We showed each other the minor injuries we had collected. One of the boys had broken two of his fingers, and another had dislocated his ankle. These boys were sent to the medical unit, after which they would be let go. He had got through twelve obstacles, which by any standard was extraordinary. Later, impressed, the other boys would rave about it, most of them having themselves tackled only nine or ten obstacles at best. Embarrassed, I lied and said that I had completed eight. Lunch was about to be served, so we hung around in the corridor. Apricot yellow sunlight filtered through the patterns on the wall of the hallway and fell on his face in an odd geometry, slicing through his chocolatey eyes. Under the sun, his skin was the colour of rusty iron. Sweat dripped down his sideburns. On his shirt, there were damp half-moons near his armpits. After lunch, everyone raced to the bathrooms. The interviews were in the evening and everybody wanted to shower and shave. The smell of cheap perfumes was pervasive. Dracker, Rumba, Maxi, Prophecy, Brute. In front of the mirror, a boy was flossing his teeth with a thread pulled from the sleeve of his t-shirt. Another rubbed his teeth with powdered charcoal. Inside the door of a stall, someone had drawn a penis and a circle. There was a phone number scribbled under the drawing, and next to it, a few faded words. Suck Parvez Musharraf's cock. I had heard all kinds of things about the ISISB interviews. One of my cousins had told me that during his interview, the president had switched off the lights in his office for a few seconds and then asked my cousin what had changed. My cousin made up some theory about the laws of thermodynamics and light intensity, but the president replied, Time, only time changed. The first thing I noticed when I entered this president's office was his paunch, neatly tucked beneath the desk. He had no neck. Assalamu alaikum wa as-salam. When I sat down, his head obstructed my view of the slogan printed on the wall behind him. Excellence is not a skill, it's an attitude. He asked me to tell him about myself and why I wanted to join the Air Force. And while I did so, he made circular motions in his ear with his finger. It came out with a smattering of pale yellow earwax. The rest of the interview was a litany of questions. Who is the defense minister of Pakistan? Does the Pakistan Navy have helicopters? Which ones? How much is XYZ kilometers in square feet? What's the capital of Sudan? Do you have any family members in the armed forces? What's your household income? So, you're Shia. Name the twelve Imams. Recite Nadeh Ali. When the interview was over, I thanked him for his time. As I was getting up to leave, he dropped his pen on the floor. Uncertain about what to do, I bent down and reached for it. Don't, he yelled at me and pressed a buzzer on his desk. The door opened. A superintendent entered and, without being told what was needed, picked up the pen, placed it on the president's desk, and took his leave. A rehearsed trick, I realized. To pick up a fallen object from the floor was beneath the dignity of an armed officer. I had failed. The interview with the psychologist was shorter, more personal, and devoid of any preposterous theatrics. You're the only son of your parents. How will they feel if you die fighting for Pakistan? Do you have a girlfriend? No. A boyfriend then. It's so common these days, you know. When was the last time you had sex? Have you ever had anal sex? Do you watch porn? Do you masturbate? I said I did not remember the last time I had done so. She was clever, the psychologist. A small black mole above her lips, like the infamous Indian TV soap lady villain Kamalika. Her eyes were like needle to the skin, possessing a sharpness that did not merely see, but saw through. Come evening, everyone was relieved, ecstatic even. It was over, and on top of that, no one was being sent home tonight. The results were to be posted the next morning. There was excitement among the boys because at 8pm, one of the TV channels would air a Pakistani movie. It was a low-budget lollywood rip-off of a Bollywood film, which itself was a copy of a Dollywood film. I had no interest in the movie, so I decided to return to my room and read. I was a few pages into my book when he came into the room looking for me. Oye, kya hua? Not watching the movie? Hey, I'm not feeling well, and I've seen the movie before, I said, lying. He stood near my bed and touched my forehead with the back of his hand. Fever? I don't know, just not feeling great. He sat down next to me on the bed. How was your interview? He asked. It was okay. The president was a prick. Instinctively I felt the need to remedy the lie I had told him the day before and after a pause I said You know I lied earlier I did not want to get selected initially but now I think I do like I wouldn't mind it I knew you did he said a smile cutting into his cheeks I know you knew I smiled back "'And you're not tall enough for the Air Force anyway,' he said, teasingly. "'Shut up. I'm taller than you.' "'No, you're not.' "'Okay, let's see,' I said, getting up from the bed. "'I took his hand and made him stand, too, "'his touch softly textured like gauzy fabric. "'We stood face to face, our chests touching. "'Look, I'm taller,' he said, joking.' He wasn't taller than me. My nose was level with the top of his head. I could smell the metallic fragrance that rose from his hair. Let's lie down and check, I said. It's more accurate that way. You're crazy, he said, laughing. Come on, I tugged at his hand, getting into bed and pulling him to it. He laughed again. He acquiesced. He lay down on the bed, both hands resting on his chest as if in prayer. Now what? he said to the ceiling. I was next to him, propped up on an elbow, staring at his face, silent. Happy? he asked, placing his palms on the bed, lifting his back. I was happy. I grabbed his arm and held him down. A tint of white from the tube light overhead hovered on his hair, shattered in his eyes. Bursts of laughter and clapping came from the ante room across the hallway. I continued to stare at him. I imagined what lay beneath the layers of his clothing. A constellation of hard pink pimples on his chest and a few tiny white bus filled ones too, barely camouflaged by a thin film of hair unhard dick, flimsy and shriveled, like a dead seahorse washed up on the shore, resting above his coarsely shaved pubic hair. Let me get up now, he said, trying to free himself from my grip. Keeping him pinned under me, I placed my head on his chest, heard two distinct beats of his heart, thrumming like frogs in a pond. Small, silvery coins of pure joy jangled in the pockets of my own heart. Then he pushed me. What the hell are you doing? As soon as he sat up and ran his hand through his hair, the door to the room slammed shut. We heard the sound of a bolt being fastened on the outside. A rope tightened around my neck. We ran to the door and shoved it. We banged on the door, screaming into it, Open it. Who is it? Please unlock the door. Half an hour later, when the door opened, the resident officer was behind it. In the president's office, a naked bulb hung from a wire above the desk, illuminating stacks of paper and khaki envelopes. The resident officer was in a corner, leaning against the wall, alternating between staring out of the dark window and typing furiously into his small Nokia, ignoring her joint pleas and apologies. Two headlights came into view in the window as a car serpentined toward the office building. The president entered and switched on the main lights. Blinding brightness exploded in the room. He was wearing a shalwar kameez, not his uniform. He told the resident officer to have someone send tea for Madame and juices for the children. His wife and kids were waiting for him outside in the car. It was a Friday night. I imagined a little skirmish must have taken place at the president's house when the call came. The kids must have cried out in protest as their plan to go to KFC or McDonald's or some other play area was being stalled by this call from one of their Baba's friends. But Baba, you promised. We were supposed to take the kids out tonight. The wife must have joined in. I'm sorry, John, but something urgent has come up. Why don't you guys come along and we can eat at the office's mess tonight? It was eerie to think that the president had a life outside the ISIS-B, that he, like the rest of us, was answerable to a family. Hello, mister. I'm talking to you. Are you deaf? The president snapped his fingers, waving the Aura's phone in my face. On its screen, a blurred and bleary photo, a wash in sepia colors, and in it the body of two boys joined in a way they should not be, the faces indiscernible our own. Hot tears began accumulating in my eyes, flowing down my face of their own volition. A tremor got in my throat. Sir, I was just... Sir, we did absolutely nothing wrong he interrupted, speaking with conviction and drawing the president's attention away from me. We should not be detained like this. We were just resting together. Shut up. Speak when you're spoken to, the president snapped at him and then, turning back to me, he said, You are the Shia boy, aren't you? What was your name? He smiled and nodded as I offered it to him. Getting up to all kinds of dirty things during Muharram, huh? Shameful, he spat. Then, after a sigh, he said, You should be glad I am a Sayyid too. Don't want to make a Yazid out of myself by punishing another Sayyid, especially during these holy days. I stared at him, vibrating with fear, the tears stinging my eyes, but somehow filled with optimism. The president was staring at the wall clock behind me. You can go back to your room, he said. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much, I replied. Both of us looked at each other, stunned and shining with relief, and made to leave the office. Hey, not you. Where do you think you're going? The president said to him. His smile turned to ice and melted under the heat of the president's glare. Talking back to me and thinking you're some kind of a hotshot? That too after talking this boy into all the filthy things you're into? The president said. He asked him his name. When he told him, the president and the RO exchanged a look. The president nodded toward the RO, more to give permission than to affirm. The RO fumbled with a few pages on the president's desk and then produced a thin, khaki envelope. Final list, confidential. The president tore the envelope open with his thick, tapered fingers. He held the paper up toward the RO, the light from behind his head illuminating its thin, membrane like surface. Five names were printed in bold in the center. ''You mess around, you mess up,'' the president said and laughed. ''Sir, please, please let us both go. We are extremely sorry. We will never do anything like that ever again,'' I pleaded, shivering, my hand already on the door handle. ''Listen up, boy. I want you to shut up and fuck off from here,'' the president said. ''You won't get another chance. Don't make me change my mind.'' I glanced at his boyish face, now grave and scared. His unyielding will had dissipated. Eyes like teacups filled to the brim, lips like dead birds. He kept swallowing hard as if there was a ball of hair suspended in his throat. My focus blurred, or I made it blur, looking not at him but past him, past the crumpled expression of fear on his face past the sharp hurt of someone who has been betrayed, settling on his hazy outlines. I thought of my parents who were already going to be so furious that I hadn't made it. I thought of the time they had brought the water down on the palms of my hand for wrapping my sister's debutta around my body. I imagined them finding out what I had done in this place. I looked away, opened the door and quietly fucked off from the president's office. The sky was dark, empty of birds. At the main building, boys were exiting the anteroom and being ushered towards the dining hall by the superintendents. Surely the superintendents must know what had happened. Must have sent the pictures of us to the RO. I thought it would be best to tell them that the president had exonerated me before they tried to create a scene. My right leg had fallen asleep. Hot needles prickled the bottom of my foot. The smell of my own sweat reached me, olid and milkier than it had been all day. As I approached one of the superintendents, hands shaking, he looked at me as if he was seeing me for the first time in his life, smiling. Come on, Beta, hurry up. It's dinner time. Don't keep the food waiting. It's bad luck, he said. Inside, I spotted a boy I had spoken to earlier. His table was half empty. I quickly sat next to him. With the fingers of one hand, I peeled the dead skin under the fingernails of the other. "'What happened to you?' "'Seen a ghost?' he asked. "'How was the movie?' I pulled my face together, countered his question. "'Yar ben chodh! The movie was fucking amazing!' but right before the ending they shut it down. The superintendent says some shit has gone down. Do you know what happened? No, I was taking a nap in the room, I said. I am not well. I felt nauseated, could not eat, but I did not dare abandon my food for the fear of being reprimanded. I shoved large bites into my mouth. As soon as I was finished, I rushed to the bathroom and threw up in the basin chunks of chicken tikka and paratha clogged the sink i looked away and swirled my finger in the beige colored smudge to unclog the drain i rinsed my mouth and washed my hands i lay awake for a long time watching the still and billowing shadows converge on the walls a chill settled in me or perhaps it was guilt fluttering its wings in my chest it was foolish Reckless what we had done. I had done. I said his name out loud to myself. Babber, Baber, Babar. The words felt like broken teeth in my mouth. We would never have talked had he not accosted me. I would have spent my days here in seclusion. I had learned to make myself invisible around other boys. What had he seen in me on that first day when he sat several rows away and smiled at me and waved in my direction. Had he seen himself reflected in my eyes? Did this reflection kindle in him a platonic want, the desire to know and be known? And at what cost had this reflection come? Behind the veneer of my sleek clothes and a plagiarized sophistication, did he see the potential for cruelty? And behind the borrowed sense of haughtiness and an accent that was sharpened to impress and charm, did he see my willingness to be selfish? The cost of reaching out, of seeking for him, was this betrayal. I saw something in him too and paid a price. He was just an escape from this place, from my family, the plan of a future that was not possible the map of a place that did not exist. And in chasing the promising of these things, even transgressing in the process of possessing them, I realized how cruel and heartless I could be, how childish in my selfishness. I felt scalded by shame. In Koita, Shias were being slaughtered in the streets. Their families had to protest with the corpses of their loved ones laid out on beds of ice on the highway before a federal minister or a governor responded to their pleas. Elsewhere too, Shia bodies were being torn apart by explosives. My own family and I had escaped a bomb blast a couple of years ago during the 10th of Muharram procession in Karachi. And here I was, acquitted, free, simply because the president was Shia too. Just as I was thinking this, I heard the sound of a car engine revving up outside, coming alive like a feral animal roused from sleep. Panic rose in me. I have to do something, anything, I thought. I had to get him out. I had to stop the president whose car was stuttering along the tarmac path outside. I got up from my bed and ran to the door, knocked. I knocked for a while, audible yet soft thumps, so as not to wake any of the boys, many of whom were already snoring. Then I banged, loud and wild and desperate. The drumming sound drowned the initial waves of protest from the boys who had started to stir in their beds. What are you doing? Have you gone mad? Missing your mama? The first one arrived with a muted ferocity, hit the back of my head and fell to the ground with a thud. A low cackle emerged from a corner of the room. Then another shoe, poorly aimed, hit the door. I continued to pound. My indifference to the boys' subtle small acts of violence seemed to have emboldened them. Swirled something inside them, an excitement, a last night's spirit of adventure. A half-filled bottle of water hit the centre of my spine. A dull ache slowly spread. I turned around. A wet towel hurled in my direction made it as far as the middle of the room. Guffars of laughter. A rain of ordinary objects began to pour from all directions. I sat down on the floor, folded my arms around my knees sank my head in the hollow space between them. Tears began to flow down my face and into my lap. Yes, I thought, this is what I deserve. I sat there for a long time. Eventually the boys got bored and went back to sleep. Unbidden, I thought of his smile on the first day, bright and capricious, and the strange storm on his face when I left him in the president's office. What would the president do to him? Beat him up? Rape him? Hand him to intelligence? I imagined him sitting in a chair in the center of the office, the president hurling insults at him. No place in the Air Force for gandus. The psychologist would be there too, standing in a corner, arms akimbo, laughing a hyper laugh and saying, I knew you were a freak. Through the first few minutes, he would stay calm, expressionless. Midway, he would squeeze his eyes and clench his teeth to hold the tears back. And not until he has butchered his tongue, blood trickling down the side of his lips and soaking his stubble, would the president stop yelling at him. All these thoughts were unbearable, I couldn't go on. In the morning, I will find him, I imagined instead. I will bring the insides of his smooth wrists to my split cheeks. I will show him the tattered Maffa bruises on my body, and he will show me his. Each of us will say to the other, look what they did to me. Near dawn, it had rained. A mild, short-lived, broken-hearted rain. Clouds the color of dirty socks hung low in the sky. Decolored puddles had formed in the foliage. I couldn't find him. He wasn't in his room and was absent for breakfast. He wasn't there when the final result was posted. He wasn't there to find out that only five boys had been selected, that one of the boys was me. He wasn't there when everyone else was asked to back up and leave. He wasn't there for any of this. He had disappeared. Anything could have happened to him. Though I told myself, as I would continue to tell myself for years afterward, that in the end, during the night, he had simply been let go.
0: That was Hermat Kosmi reading their story Selection Week. This is their first story in the magazine. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Anne Patchett reads The Proxy Marriage by Miley Malloy. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.